today we get to uh, finish chapter 3. We're studying through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible app or your Bibles, please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. We just have three verses today, three powerful verses. Follow with me. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 says this. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Great indeed, Paul writes, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We see here in this text that Paul is passionate about the church. For Paul, he believes that the church was a vital, was so important to the purposes of God in the world. The church was not a place that we go to or a building that we sit in. It wasn't a social club to help us make friends. It wasn't a movement to help us feel better. The church was and is a group of people who follow Jesus Christ and how they live and how they worship. And so I've entitled this message, Remember Whose You Are, Remembering Who You Are and Whose You Are in Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be focusing on who we are as the church and how we should behave as the church. Who we are as the church because of Jesus Christ and how we should behave because of what Jesus Christ has done. And Paul talks talks a lot and focuses a lot on Christian conduct and behavior. And the Christian conduct or behavior that Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to live by is based upon who they are in Christ. And so a little overview of what we're going to be talking about is Paul first talks in in Timothy, and he gives three metaphors or descriptions of the church, and he shares the purpose of his writings. And then it's going to be followed by six statements that summarizes Jesus' earthly ministry and what Paul describes as the mystery of godliness. So first, we're going to be talking about what is the purpose of Paul's writings, and second, what is the mystery of godliness. Before we get into these uh, three powerful verses, will will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much uh, for those watching today throughout this week. Lord, we thank you so much that um, you have called us your family. We thank you so much that we can, we can gather, even if we're not in person, through, through video and through online platforms, Lord. We thank you so much that we can still be together while we are apart and, and um, just make the best, Lord, just of this season. Lord, I pray for each individual watching Um, that you will speak to their heart and life and mine as well, Lord, as we just work through this passage. May you uh, strengthen us, give us hope, and help us to be reminded, Lord, that we have the greatest news ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I never thought that um, anyone in my immediate family would ever want to leave California. Um, Growing up and even in my early 20s, I was like, my immediate family, the Fogel family, Uh, We're going to be together. I mean, after all, California is pretty great when you think about it. Out of all the places, either we were born or we could live, we ended up here um, in California. And uh, when you really think about it, throughout the whole entire world, we're here in the U.S., and if you kind of zoom in a little bit more um, and you had to pick, hey, where you want to live, we're in California, and in California, there's northern or southern, and we're in southern California, and we're, we're here in Orange County. 
and we are tremendously blessed to be here with this weather and just uh, be in such a, a great place uh, to live and to grow up. And I'm sure there's different problems that go on here with where we live, but overall, we're, we're tremendously blessed to be here. And so I never really thought that anybody in my immediate family would want to leave. Um, I grew up here in California. I'm the youngest of four siblings, and so um, it all started when my brother uh, moved to New York, followed by my sister moved to Washington, D.C., and a few years ago, my parents moved to Washington State near Seattle, and I still have one other brother that's here in Orange County, but probably not for long. He's probably not going to be here for too long, and so I just know that one day I'm going to be the only California kid left, and even with the advancements of, of technology, um, it's, it's still not the same as seeing your immediate family in person. And at least I get to travel to cool places like New York and D.C. and Seattle. It's not like my family moved to Indiana or something. I'm sorry if you're from Indiana, but um, these are cool spots that I get to travel, but still it's not the same, and I, and I miss them. I'm sure there are a lot of people that you miss as well that have moved away or moved on. And, and do you remember a, a time when you were, you were separated by a close friend or a family member for the first time? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember how you might, you might long uh, to see that person again? And so before Paul gets into writing about the purpose of his writings um, and the mystery of godliness, verse 15 and 16, he says this in verse 14. Follow with me. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, these instructions to you so that if I delay. Paul hopes to visit Timothy soon in Ephesus but he knows he might be delayed. Paul hopes to reunite together with his buddy, Timothy. Have you ever seen any of those uh, welcome home commercials or those, or those video clips on social media? A kid comes home from college after being gone for his first year out of the nest, and, and he comes back and gets to hang out with his family. Or a sib- siblings that are separated from one another, whether it's a brother or a sister, and maybe they're separated at birth and they finally get to meet in person. Or those videos where someone loses their, their, their beloved animal, maybe it was a lost puppy, and the family finally gets to see um, their, their dog that they've missed forever. And you've seen these videos, right? I mean, when it's expected, I still get really emotional. Like um, a husband and wife, maybe they meet at an airport and they haven't seen each other for a while. When it's expected, I, I get emotional. But when it's a surprise, when it's a surprise, that's when I'm an emotional mess. I saw this video once of a military dad that came home overseas, and he, and he surprised his daughter at her high school graduation. When I saw that, I just started thinking through, and, and, and just tears came to my face. Or a doctor that surprises his family and gets to see his kids again after he has been quarantined for several months. <clears throat> and uh, maybe for me, uh, I'm emotional for these things because now I have a, I'm married and I have kids and I'm kind of soft to them. Um, but we see that in verse 14 that Paul was away from Timothy, that, that, who was in Ephesus. And it's almost like Paul is a dad writing home to his son. In Philippians 2, verse 20, Paul writes this about Timothy. He says, For I have no one like you who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for you seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing you these instructions. If I delay, I'm writing you so that you may know how to behave. When Paul first met Timothy, we know that Timothy was known and respected by many Christians, 
Paul became a mentor to Timothy and a friend. The two traveled together. They did did ministry together, and they spent a lot of time together, and they developed this strong friendship. When Paul was released from prison, it allowed him to travel to Ephesus to eventually place Timothy in a ministry position at the church. Paul then went on to preach in Macedonia, where he heard reports of Timothy's work at Ephesus, and it caused him to write 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul hoped to reunite with Timothy, but he wasn't sure, and so he wrote ahead. The question that I've been kind of wrestling through and thinking through is, did Paul and Timothy ever reunite? And the answer is, we don't know. They were best buddies, and they might have never seen each other again. And it's kind of a sobering reminder for us today. Maybe you have someone that you wish you could reunite with. Maybe you have plans one day to connect with a loved one or, or a lost friend. We see that Paul, in this letter, he reaches out. He writes, he loves, and we get to be blessed by this letter today as the Holy Spirit worked through Paul to communicate what we get to read. And it's a reminder for us in this time, as we're kind of isolated, as, as things are kind of changed for us to reach out, even when it's difficult. I know FaceTime and, and emails and text messages and, and social media, it doesn't quite connect and fill those, those uh, things, that, those needs that we have as far as friendships and connections. But it's for us to reach out because we're not promised tomorrow. Relationships are a gift. And so for me this week and hopefully for you as well, maybe we could take some time just to slow down if we're unable to connect with those loved ones, those relationships that we have. And maybe we can just connect with our Heavenly Father first. Process through everything that we are going through, how we long to reunite with one another. And those relationships that we have, how are we able to bring the gospel news to ears that, have, that are able to hear. And so verse 14 made me stop and think this week. But the hope that we have, the joy that the Bible gives us is that while we don't know if Timothy and Paul ever reunited, we know that both Timothy and Paul knew that they were part of something bigger, that they were part of something beyond this world. There was this family bond, this, this brotherhood in Christ that could never be taken away. And so why does Paul write? Why does he want to talk to Timothy to instruct him? He's writing because of his love for the gospel and his love for the local church. And so the first thing we want to kind of jump into is the purpose of Paul's writing. At the end of chapter 3, Paul kind of just pauses. It's like maybe his hand got tired from him writing, and he was just kind of led by the Spirit to write these words down. And Paul writes this, in verse 14 and 15. He said, I hope to come to you soon, but if I'm going to delay these things, but if I am writing these things to you so that if I get delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is kind of the central focus or theme of Paul's letter, how one ought to behave. The conduct or behavior Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to live by is really based on who they are in Christ. Remember whose you are. And so Paul gives three descriptions or three metaphors for how the church should behave. Paul first views the church as the house of God. Second, the church of the living God. And third, the pillar and foundation of truth. First, Paul views the church as the house of God. In verse 15, it says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, Paul's not referring to a location. He's not referring to a building or a sacred space. He's referring to the community of people who form the church. The image here that Paul gives 
is that of family. For Paul, Timothy, and the church were family. God's people are the household of God. They're the family of God. And the Bible tries to give us a lot of different metaphors and images to describe and to explain what the church is like. But I believe that there's nothing closer to the heart of the Father than the family, than the church as family. The church as family. You even think about it. God the Father calls Jesus his son. The son calls the church. Jesus calls the church his bride. This is family language. The church is family. And so as you look around, as you fellowship with other believers, recognize that they are family, that you are, you are stuck together here now on this earth and also for e- eternity. We need to remember that we are the family of God. And yet it's so easy to get really caught up in our own community and we forget that we're, much, that we're part of a much larger story. The big C church, it's the household or family of God everywhere and everyone who has received salvation through faith in Jesus. It's those seen and unseen, those followers of Jesus on this earth and those that are in heaven. It's a family that's made up of different gifts and abilities and nationalities and languages and cultures and traditions. And so when we are able to set aside some of the non-essentials, some of the things that so often separate us, and we are to focus on the gospel, that Jesus forgives us of our sin, that he offers a new life with him. I know that God is trying to soften through this text our our heart towards our own church family and then allow other people as well to enter into that family freely, to point them to Jesus, that we have family members here in Africa and Asia and Europe and South America, Australia. We have families everywhere. It's so important that we started even doing Missionary of the Month here at Bethany, where we talk about the 15 plus missionaries that we support, because we recognize that we have a family that's outside of just here in Orange County. The New Testament makes it clear that we are family, and it's not something that we just say, but it's also something that we, we are. It's true of us. It shouldn't just affect our language, but it also should affect our behavior. Let's start acting like the family of God. And some of us might say, I, I don't I can be a Christian without being a part of the church, and I really believe that we're missing the point. I really believe that God primarily works through committed relationships. Let's just say you take one Christian that doesn't get involved with the family of God here in the local church, and you take another that, that invests within the family of God. And let's say for five years they did that. One invested in the church, and another just kind of did his or her own thing. After five years, you will notice a vast difference in their spiritual health. As Christians, we're not, we're not only child Christians. We have a lot of brothers and sisters. I mean, even when you think like Pastor Jared, that dude has like 15 <laughs> brothers and sisters. The guy has a lot of siblings. And when he sees someone that is the only child, he can recognize it right away. He kind of looks at him like, you're probably an only child. And they're like, how do you know that? He's like, because I have a lot of siblings. And you're different than the way I interact with others. We're not supposed to be Christians that are alone. We're supposed to be a part of a larger church family. And the amazing thing, the cool thing about this is that our value as children of God is not determined on us being a better person. It's not determined on us trying harder. It's not determined on our personal accomplishments. Our value and worth is seen by how much our Heavenly Father loves us. And so today, may just our love increase for one another. And may we invite other people into the family of God that the Lord Jesus offers us. 
Second, Paul talks about how the church is the church of the living God. He says this in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul says this gathering, this is, is of the living God. Our God, God is real and active and living. We most experience his presence in the community of other believers. There's something important of us gathering together for us to be reminded that we need one another and that we need God. God is active and alive through his gathered people. We remember that we are the family of God, and then second, we remember that we are the gathered people of the living God. And there's a vast difference between the church and any other group or gathering that we have a living God working in and through us. Without the presence of God, we are just like any other gathering, any other group. But yet God promises for us to be with him. The presence of God among his people is a central promise. God wants to be with us, walk with us. And so for me, um, I have peers that often think, and I've kind of believed this in some ways or not, um, as I've kind of gotten older, but you really only need like the kind of hipster version of Jesus. You just need coffee, a Bible, a notebook, and Jesus, and you're, you're set, and you're good to go. And those are good things. Good coffee is, I really enjoy that. Reading the Bible, taking notes, and focusing on Christ is so important. But unless you do that in the context of community, you're not going to grow. You're going to miss out on the experiences that God has for you. And so we gather for now, online, offline. We're trying to do our best in 2020 to build connections. And for us, maybe we just need to be encouraged just to lean in find new ways to connect. One author writes this, when we begin to see the church not just as a building, but as a gathering of people who are equipped and serving others, we can see the deeper purposes in the church. And so we gather and we scatter and we gather and we scatter. And this is, this is what we're, we're, we're called to do as we grow up into um, the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're the family of God. We're the gathered people of God. And I just want to take a moment just to pause and to say, hey, if you're just able only to watch online and you're just thinking, Joe, how do I process through to be involved with the family of God during this season? How do I gather with the family of God during this season? I know things are difficult, but I believe that God is still working in amazing ways that he's allowing us to rely more on his Holy Spirit to do more things beyond the church walls and to go out into the world of people that desperately need the good news. And so I just wanted to pause and say, I know that hearing this is wonderful, but it's really difficult during this time of isolation and separation and confusion. And so Paul talks about being the family of God, the gathered people of God. And then third, he talks about the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I had to kind of stop as I've been reading through this and I've been trying to think like, isn't Jesus the foundation of, of, of the truth? As we see in like Ephesians 2, the church is built on the truth of the gospel. But we, the church, are also called to join God to uphold and protect the truth of the good news of Jesus. We get to join him to protect, to promote the good news of Jesus. We are pillars and protectors of the truth. It's not just for a pastor or a church leader. It's for all those who believe in Jesus. And it's also more than just our 
apologetics, our know how to defend the faith. It's important to lead people in the steps it takes to understand the gospel message, but without genuine love and without a gospel-changed life, we're unable to really protect the truth of our word, of the word, because we just become noise to other people. And so Paul is passionate about this. He's passionate. If you are in Christ, the gospel should be seen in tangible ways. And one of those ways is protecting and speaking the truth. Maybe for you, um, you're having a conversation with someone and they just say, hey, I think all religions are the same. They lead to, this, to the same God. They're all the same. In that moment, do you, do you stop and say, say, yeah? Or do you passively just agree with them or don't say anything at all? Or do you maybe just speak up and love? And you say, all religions aren't the same. That Christianity is about God coming down to earth. All other religions are about humans going up to try to be with God. So Christianity is different, that Jesus came to earth. Maybe you have those types of conversations. God has entrusted us, the church, to support and protect the gospel. And so Paul having reminded us that we are the family of God, the gathered people of God, the protectors and the pillar of, of the truth, the gospel, now we move into the mystery of godliness in verse 16. Paul then gives us a summary of Jesus' earthly ministry. He writes this. um, He writes six simple yet profound statements. And this is an early Christian hymn from the first century, a poetic expression of the great gospel message. Paul writes, Great indeed we, as a church, confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? The mystery of godliness or righteousness refers to the entire story of God's revealed plan of salvation. The mystery of godliness or righteousness is fully realized in the person of Jesus. Hebrews 1, 2 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all and through whom all Also, he made the universe. Before Christ, God spoke through prophets. Now, with the arrival of Jesus, the plan of salvation of God saving his people from their sin is fully revealed through Jesus Christ and the promised Holy Spirit. God has revealed this to us. And this mystery is rooted rooted in biblical um, facts about Jesus. And Paul gives us here six statements, six facts. Christ was manifested in the flesh first, vindicated by the Spirit second, seen by angels third, proclaimed among the nations fourth, believed on in the world fifth, and taken up to glory sixth. This talks about Jesus, his incarnation, how he was born and he grew up as a normal person like you and me. He felt what we feel. He was accepted, fully accepted by God and acceptable to God. He was seen by angels at his birth, during his temptation by the devil in the garden before his crucifixion, at the ascension before when he went up to be at the right hand of God the Father. This good news went out into the world, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. This, this news transformed men and women, which is a mystery in and of itself, how we can be sinful, deserving of God's wrath, and now we get his grace and mercy, and through that, through everything that Jesus is, we are able to be transformed and changed. Moving in one direction and now completely going in the opposite. And then taking up the glory in heaven, Jesus was 
perfectly unified with God the Father, yet he's still active and working in the world today. There is so much to this hymn, so much rich theology, and we can spend time talking about each and every one of these points. Jesus' incarnation, his resurrection, different appearances, the gospel message, Jesus' followers, Jesus' ascension. So much good stuff there. But for today, what I want us to focus in on is God has revealed to the church the story of Jesus, the story of salvation, the story of hope. And so I have two questions. Are you telling yourself the story? And are you telling others the story? Are you telling yourself the story? You see, the gospel story, the good news is not something we believe once and forget. We do not move on. We do not graduate from the gospel. We believe it each and every day and apply it to each and every one of the aspects of our life. As the family of God, the gathered people of God, the protectors and proclaimers of the gospel, we soak in this truth, this gospel truth, that Jesus wants to change us, every area of our life. There's areas in my life and in yours that Jesus wants to change. He wants to turn maybe some of our unbelief to belief in him. He wants to continue to allow us to trust him and to rely on him. And so are you telling yourself the story? Are you telling other people the story of God? been talking through like authors and pastors the past couple of years and I still can't get over this, this, one, this one, uh, one thought. The, the gospel can't happen through us until it happens. Um, can't happen through us until it happens to us. The gospel can't happen through us until it actually happens to us. Jeff Vanderstelt, a pastor and author, writes this. What does living for Jesus actually look like in everyday stuff of life? He says many Christians have uh, embrace the idea that the church is a once-a-week event rather than a community of spirit-empowered people, that the ministry is what pastors do on a Sunday morning rather than a 24-7 calling of believers, that discipleship is a program rather than the normal state of every follower of Jesus. He continues to write, it is imperative that the church sees that there is more, much more to the Christian life than sitting in a pew or just watching online once a week. God has called his people to something bigger, he writes, a view of the Christian life that encompasses the ordinary and the extraordinary and everything in between. The gospel can't happen through us until it happens to us. And I love how this author writes, uh, talks about giving people Jesus, that if we have a problem, the solution is Jesus, that if we have a question, the solution, the answer is Jesus. Give people Jesus. What are you going through right now, this week, today? What are those around you going through? The greatest thing that they need is Jesus. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe there needs to be some counseling or some how to, how to make your, your marriage better books, materials that you go through. Those are helpful, but at the end of the day, what we need the most is we need Jesus. We need to understand that Jesus will never walk out on us that we don't have to fix our spouse to receive love from God. Maybe you have a friend that's in a broken relationship and there's a bunch of drama that's happening and unfolding. Maybe a friend betrayed another. Maybe you tell them, hey, you just need to get new friends. Hey, you need to maybe become a better friend. Yes, those are helpful things, but what do they need the most? We need Jesus. We need to give them Jesus. Jesus is calling you his friend. Jesus is always there for you and listens to you. He moves towards you. Maybe we're going through financial hardship. 
Maybe you're helping someone and you're saying, here's 10 steps to how to be more successful, how to make more money. Business and learning how to budget, those are all helpful things, but what we need the most is Jesus. Understanding that he is our provider, that he is our caregiver, that, that we are rich because of the love and mercy that we received from him. What are you going through? What are those around you going through? You need Jesus. For me, it's kind of working through this passage in verse 14, I just kind of been recognizing that I'm away from my immediate family. And working through this passage, I've come to realize now I need more of Jesus and what he provides, and he's given me such an amazing church family. That while I have family that's not necessarily here in California, that my family's much bigger than just my immediate family. Jeff writes this, he says, our job is not to be Jesus. Our job is to believe Jesus, to depend on Jesus, to submit to Jesus, working in and through us to accomplish his work. And so tell yourself the story. Tell other people the story, whether that's through reading, whether that's through music, whether that's through conversations with family and friends, in life groups, on Sunday mornings when we hear a sermon and we worship through singing. How is the good news of Jesus applied to our everyday problems, our questions, our needs? And so often for us as Christians, we become Christers. We learn about the story of Jesus just during Christmas. We talk about his birth and during Easter when we talk about his death. And maybe we focus a little bit on the resurrection, but it's mostly focused on the, on the death is what we talk about. And so we talk just about the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Tell yourself a story. Tell other people's story. Learn more about the story. Learn about the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus and his arrival when he was born. And from when he was born all the way to when he died on the cross, there's the story of Jesus and his love and how we can just see how wonderful he is. From the resurrection to the rise of the early church and even today and how God's working through ordinary men and women. Tell the story of God and his gospel. As we, as we close for today, just want to continue to say this. Remember whose you are. When I was dating my, my wife, Amanda, before we got married, I would leave her house and her, her dad would say, Raya. And I would kind of look at him and be like, that's kind of weird. And she would respond back to her dad, Raya. Remember whose you are. And Amanda's dad got that from his mother-in-law who said that to her family. It's kind of been a little bit of a tradition for ours. Remember whose you are, that you were created by God, loved by God, liked by God, that you belong in his church family, that he's called you to a greater purpose, that you are claimed and that you are loved.